Welcome to Ethereal Underground. I'm your host, TNT, and this is episode 36. Well, I have a special guest for tonight. I'm very excited to have Asha on board. I had her on once before. I would say, I'm just guesstimating, maybe three years ago close to that, that when I had a YouTube channel, I had a lot of videos, over 400 videos. And then um, as there's more censorship on these platforms, the mainstream platforms that I think the uh, global syndicate or alphabet agencies control, and they started clamping down, I lost that channel, was able to archive maybe half, a little over half of the videos, but I lost the first third. And she was in one of those videos, it was a good interview. But I don't have it. I don't think I was able to save it in time. I didn't know better. I should have backed everything up from the beginning, from the very first video, YouTube. Well, I've long since been gone on YouTube. I do the Outer Limits show, and then I've got the Odyssey channel. But having Asha back is good, because now it'll be archived, and you're part of the Ethereal Underground Network. So that being said, uh, Asha, I want to welcome you to the show. And you've heard shows in the past. We've, we've talked about that. So whatever you're comfortable sharing with the listening audience as far as general background, like what generation are you? Uh, do you have any siblings? Uh, what did you do maybe for work as you were growing up, the different careers that you had? What led you to today? Like, what are you doing today? Are you retired? Are you still active in work? If so, What's that? Uh, what do you do? And then we can get into the good stuff after the introduction. All right. Thank you for having me. It's a real joy. Uh, let's see. Uh, I am a baby boomer. Um, Started school at the very end of the 1950s and went to school during the 60s and 70s. Um, decided to leave an upscale high school. And uh, I was the oldest with quite a few siblings. Uh, three brothers and a sister. And... Um, decided in high school to go to a vocational technical school and study computer programming. Back in those days, it was called electronic data processing. And about the only thing I start off with is, I'm proud to say that I debugged in binary on a second generation IBM computer. So that makes me officially <clears throat> a dinosaur. <laughs> I was gonna say, does that mean you should be in the Smithsonian? Yes, absolutely stuffed with a six-part printer paper with carbon and carbon paper in the middle, you know, spewing out of my mouth or something. 
Um, now, now, let me ask you this. Two questions uh, before you go any further. Like what region of the country was this that you grew up, East Coast, mid Midwest, West Coast? And are, that computer, that, that's early stages of the computer. Is this the punch card error or even before punch card? Absolutely. It's the punch card era, but I actually, in my technical schooling, went prior to punch card, punch card era. So okay. I was actually doing uh, wires on boards and so forth. We did later, you know, after about half a year of learning the older unit record equipment, then we got into cards and key punching and so forth. Okay. But I, I do feel that it gave me a an outstanding background in in my field which of course you know somebody working for apple or google right now would probably laugh and just think i'm you know an old baby boomer but um it was quite a risk for me to do that uh i was born in the east coast i was born in um eastern pennsylvania uh but my i always say i've lived in five countries but they all speak english because I've <laughs> I've gone from a farm with hex signs on the barns to upscale suburban Midwest St. Louis to New York City, which for many years was the longest stint in my life. My computer career took me to New York City. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I went to Tucson, Arizona for a decade. And I've been out in Southern California for two decades now. So officially... I've been in Southern California the longest segment of my life, but the difference between New York City and Tucson with cowboys and Native Americans and Pennsylvania Dutch land and the Midwest, um, and now out here in California, it's it's really been a joy and it's been very opening to have such diverse cultures within the United States. Um and they truly are. It's it's amazing. But I, I think that also has widened me. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, well, so, let, yeah. let, me ask, let me ask you this real quick. Uh, while I think of it, so, so sorry for no, that's okay. in, interrupting. Yeah, but uh, hopefully you don't lose track of your thoughts. These different, because that is diverse. You're talking about East Coast, uh, mm -hmm. born, born uh Eastern Pennsylvania, so outside of Philadelphia, I'd imagine. Correct. Uh, and then uh, uh, St. Louis, because that's where, where you're uh, mainly in school. And that's the high school and the tech school training you got. Then you had the career in New York, computer. We can talk a little more about that. Uh, Arizona, California. So you had these different regions. I don't think I'd ask the typical question, what's your favorite place to live? I mean, that'd be interesting. It's my hunch would probably say, oh, I like California because of the weather and so forth. But do you think the different regions of the country as you were growing up played a specific role as to where you are today? Absolutely. Like, Un okay. Unequivocally, absolutely. Yes. And I look back on it and I see how the different regions influenced who I am. Okay. Uh, this is the simplest one to bring out. Being in California out here for 20 years, well, my biggest surprise was how hard Californians worked. I was such a New York City snob and was very snide about Californians. Oh, they just surf and, you know, 
boy, was I wrong. I was so judgmental at the time and so wrong because Californians have to work long, long hours to pay for the cost of living out here. And they spend a third of their days in commuter traffic. So <laughs> it's, it, I mean, it really was eye-opening to me to see how dedicated and how hard people worked and that they didn't get to surf very much. You know, maybe your college kids do, but it, it's a fantasy that Hollywood puts out that that isn't a reality. But I've, I would say, one of the things I say at my age now is absolutely pivotal to me is the Midwest hardworking core ethic, uh, extremely uh, responsible, detail-oriented, uh, good to my word, always on time, hard worker, follow through with things in my career, apply myself, do very well. I mean, some of that certainly family and genetics, but the Midwest work ethic I have noticed over and over and over again is something to in a way, I hope it's okay to say this, it's something to be proud of when you get to other regions of the United States and it, they're different. Yeah. So it doesn't mean that all of America is lazy. I don't mean it that way, but I think your listening audience has probably heard the term, oh, so-and-so has the Midwestern work ethic. And that that's really true of me. Now, why do you think, because I want to ask you to describe a little bit more about the New York experience, but uh, if this isn't too tough of a question, maybe two minutes or less, uh, why do you think in the United States, big country, you have the East Coast, West Coast, Midwest, and then Northern, colder states, your Michigan, Detroit, mm -hmm. Wisconsin type, and then mm -hmm. South, Florida. Mm -hmm. But why do you think the country tends to make fun of the Midwest? Can you answer that in less than two minutes or is that too big of a question? Yes. And do you mean our current society and how they make fun of the Midwest? You know, like where America is now. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Or, or yeah, say last 30 years, because I, I remember uh, politicians making fun of the Midwest, like it's the mm -hmm. flyover country and yes, uh, dating cows or taking cows to prom, you know, that kind of uh, those kind of jokes. That's mm -hmm. what, why do you mm -hmm. think that? What do you think that is? Because I'm in the Midwest, I'm in the Midwest, and uh, that joking and everything, I'm like, no, no way that exists. There's some hard, yeah. hard working. Uh, your word means a lot. In the Midwest, I'm thinking, what? Why we uh, get poked, made fun of so much? Uh, I mean, there's different ways I could go with answering that, but I think one thing is, the Midwest is not a vacation destination place for a lot of Americans. They'll go to New England, they'll go to Florida, they'll go to Texas, they'll go to, of course, the West Coast. Yeah. Um, so they don't know the Midwest. They don't understand the expansiveness of it. They certainly do not understand how important it is to their food. And I'm not negating the produce of California, but they don't, they do not understand the grains, the cattle, they don't understand the barges and the Mississippi and, and the bread basket of the of one of the largest bread baskets of the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, Russia is another one, but the United States, I don't think they understand um, the community that is really the basis of, of your American musicals, you know, uh, 
Music Man, Oklahoma, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, all that kind of thing. They just make fun of it, but they don't understand that there is a community um, based around agriculture, crops, very difficult weather, um, and not the distractions that you have of of the oceans and some of the other regions. Now, of course, this could be said of, let's say, the Dakotas, but I think that there is a misunderstanding of, there is an assumption that the Midwest is not sophisticated. And I think, again, that is deliberately coming out of our media and our entertainment. And it has very effectively tainted people to think they are better than the Midwest in sophistication, therefore education, therefore lifestyle, therefore taste and so forth. Uh, it's not true, but that's, I, I think that's some of it. I don't, I mean, not that you have to judge my answer, but I think I think that's some of it. Well, you know, Missouri, uh, one of the, the state logos is the show me state. That's and right. I've, I've heard, have you heard this? I've heard it from more than one sources. I did check the fact that in in marketing like if it's a new product say mm -hmm. it's a new, new soda soft drink right. or a type that i i heard the marketing secret is if it can fly in missouri or the midwest they have a winner because absolutely have you heard that too absolutely and it is yeah. missouri and by the way it's st louis <laughs> Now, I don't know how much of that is spilled over to Kansas City, but or yeah. let's say a, a growing area like Springfield, Missouri, but absolutely, yeah. And um uh and that show me state is has been picked on politically. We certainly know that because uh Missouri just absolutely doesn't budge. They're 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 the last state that let Tesla in. I mean. I'm sure your listeners know numerous stories of uh, the Midwest and its um, I'm going to say it's thoughtfulness and you have to prove it. Yeah. That, that it, you don't just come sailing through and, and successfully bamboozle the Midwest it just doesn't happen. Yeah, and I'll, I'll say one more point because the show is not about Missouri because everyone's like, what do we care about that state? It's, most of us live elsewhere. But uh, during the Civil War, uh, yeah. pro probably second to Pennsylvania area with a lot of bloody battles, people are unaware of absolute brutal battles in Missouri. It was, yep. a, split, it was a split state and you had brother killing brother, one for the Confederates in the, in the Northern Union. Mm -hmm. uh, very historical. And, and I just know that Missouri are some tough people and they won't let you get away with, with much. And if you look at the history of Missouri, uh, Missouri uh, legislation and uh, attorney generals, Missouri sues the federal government more than any other state in the mm -hmm. union. That's right. So that's interesting yeah. thought to keep in mind. Now, when you went to New York, I'll use this term loosely, like it's a, it's a sporting term that could apply for uh, men and women, but in the prime of your life, let's say 20 to 35, wasn't that the period that you spent most of your time in New York? Absolutely. Yeah. I moved, okay. I moved there at 23 and left at 42. Okay. So from 23 
23 to 42, that's, that's your prime. You're in the hustle bustle in New York, and that's your in the computer field, correct? All those that's, years? That's that's correct. Yes. Yeah, and you worked on some pretty neat pr projects. We talked kind of off off air. I don't you don't have to describe specifically what they were, but these were very advanced language programs and what they had worldwide impact. Yes, they did. Yes. And some of what was that I worked on developing still exists today in its core as a kernel to tools that people use today. Yes. And just so the audience to not leave them in the dark, could you easily, could you describe simply, it was, it was a type of language translation, wasn't it? That was never the first of its kind in the world. That's right. Are you, can you explain it in, in like a, a minute or two for us uh, non-techie, non-computer programmer people? Yeah, yes, I have a um, framed poster in my office over here that hardly anybody notices, but uh, it was the IBM flyer that sold the project, that was marketing the project that uh, I was one of the main designers on, and I happened to be the cover girl, so I look pretty young on this on this poster. Yeah. But it was uh, when, um, when hot metal typing, uh, hot metal linotype and uh, printing was on its way out. It was it was destined to go into extinction. There was a scramble to get into what was called coal type, which was computerized typesetting. Well, the, on a more simple basis, if you're a secretary and you're writing letters for the men and women at, uh, in English, that's one thing. But if you are a series publisher, if you're a government publisher, if you're an academic publisher, if you're uh, an encyclopedia company at that time, if you're a newspaper, uh, if you're a medical journal type uh, publishing house, and if you're multi-language, you were definitely in trouble. <laughs> um, how do you cold type? What kind of software do you use to type? Cyrillic or Tagalog or Sanskrit or Hebrew or Chinese, Korean, Japanese. Get my drift? Yeah. So uh, we were the original team that developed not only all of the fonts and letters of every language and dialect spoken on the earth, but all the hyphenation modules and all the grammatical rules for publishing what used to be called galleys or your print pages uh, so that an offset printer could, could publish the uh, text and also provide proofreading tools for the proofreaders that worked in those languages. So people don't think about it, but every country has their for instance, every country has their governmental publications and who's proofreading it, how's it getting published. Um, so we started on that. We started on the text and so forth and successfully designed all of that ability. Um, and uh, IBM got a hold of it definitely and started marketing it for big bucks. And then we evolved into adding photography or artwork or graphs or um published images with it. So that was a later iteration because this, my work spanned 14, 15 years. 
So then it was inserting published photographs or pictures, so forth. Um, and so I had the honor of working from Sotheby's and Christie's auction house to the British Museum, to the British Library, to the National Institute of Health, to the Library of Congress, to National Geographic, to the Encyclopedia Britannica, to the publishing houses and, and government publishing houses around the world. It was it was quite a stint in my life. And uh, yes, I was a workaholic and I programmed in 14 languages and I worked with a team of over 300 people. And a lot of those people were under me. I was one of the founders and main hubs of the design of all that work. And uh, I think you're probably the first female. <laughs> in that group. I was. I was yeah. the first. I was running the largest IBM shop as a single female. I was the youngest female west of the Mississippi running the biggest shop that IBM had in the country. Yeah. And I was only about 20 when I was doing that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I was, yeah, it was a lot of work. It was very common for me to work a 70 or 80 hour week and mm. hardly went on vacation, complete workaholic. So my my inside joke is some people are drug addicts. Some people are nicotine addicts. Some people are gambling addicts. I was a compiler addict. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And then, uh, that groundbreaking work of the 70s. And 70s and 80s, yes, yeah, 70s and 80s. Uh -huh. 70s and 80s, you have more than half the world's population in the computer industry piggybacking off what you, your department, and the 300 developed. So Absolutely, the, yes. kind of unsung heroes. Everyone takes for granted computer mm -hmm. softwares now and yep imaging and translations and none of that existed until you worked on that program so you're a pioneer absolutely and what, what billions of people take for granted had to start somewhere yeah well and, when you and i would say those the billions of people are are using the you know a, a much later evolutionized iteration of my software and our software are using it as an everyday tool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. for sure. So without putting words in your mouth, did you, you, you can explain if you want to, we move on. If, if you had all those hours and that stress load, all those years in New York, did, did you suffer any kind of burnout or anything? Or did you transition and, and skedaddle out of New York and move? Cause you went from there, you said to Arizona, then California. Mm -hmm. What what brought or is it, am I being too nosy? What brought you from leaving New York going to Arizona? Did you switch careers or what happened? Well, you know, just in general, nothing specific. Um, in general, I got into my early forties and um, I hit a wall, and I had uh, I had some things happen in my life that caused uh, great emotional tumult and uh, spiritual crises. So I had a, a psycho-emotional spiritual breakdown um, between 39 and 41. It was really bad. And I did massive healing for eight years 
and I went across the country to work with specialists who could help with my situation. And I did a very long, very expensive, and very arduous change of my life. And, and basically, Humpty Dumpty fell apart, and I put myself back together with the help of many fine people that helped me along that journey. Okay, so, so leaving yeah. New York, leaving New York and there, Arizona, that's during this transition, this healing of Humpty Dumpty, putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. Yes. Yeah. I, uh, I realized that I needed really good professional help in, uh, in my particular case, I mean, obviously I'm a little abnormal, but I interviewed 156 mental health professionals until I found somebody I wanted to hire. And mm -hmm. so I went through a whole lot of people and I found uh, somebody to start working with who then felt that there was a team in Tucson that could really help me. And so that's that's basically what happened between a, a a professional in New York City and a team in Tucson. They're the ones that uh, basically helped me from not committing suicide and from to work through uh, what my workaholism was icing over. And through that, I had a profound, spiritually transformative experience and a huge shift in my life. So I did a a complete turn. And through that left the computer industry. I have no right to blame the computer industry. It's it's like, you know, a blaming wine when you're an alcoholic. You know, it wasn't computers or compilers or the technical industry. I was using that to not deal with what was really going on within me. But once I did start dealing with what was underneath it, I chose not to go back to computers. And I made my second career change. And that second career change happened in Arizona? Uh, actually, in a way it did, yes. So, uh, towards the end of my decade in Arizona, you think things are a fluke and then you look back later in your life. I got into the tile industry, T-I-L-E, <laughs> tile industry. You mean construction? Construction. In construction, yes, in and um, working for a tile store, but working with uh, builders and tile setters and architects that, and I was I was running a tile store and warehouse for a while, and the uh, when the economy fell out during the um, early nineties, when uh, in the nineties, when the um, I can't think of his name, he was an Arizonan, and the savings and loan debacle all fell apart. Oh, yeah. The governor of Arizona bottomed out and ended up in prison. Uh, that whole thing, it affected the owners of the company I was working for. And we came into work one day and everything was locked and there was there were no paychecks and there was no longer a job. <laughs> uh, you mean was, kind of like FTX employees today? Yes. Yes. <laughs> sort of like like FTX employees. Exactly. So um, I ended up coming over to San Diego, to Southern California, to San Diego, and got hired by a very established company. And um, they decided that with my background and what I'd been doing, they were going to make me their architectural sales rep. So I got kind of catapulted into Southern California commercial construction. And instead of working with 
designers who were redoing bathrooms and kitchens. I was working on hospitals, biotech labs, airport terminals, casinos, hotel chains, restaurants, government buildings, uh, college campus buildings, doing things like cladding and biotech labs and surgery rooms for hospitals. And I did that for 20 years and got okay. to know an awful lot of architects. I'm, you know, the claim to fame, one of my claim to fame is things like the cladding on things like court appellate buildings in Orange County and um, large casino projects, um, airport terminals, things like that. Any, you know, it was, it was, it was interesting. It was very, very diverse from academic computer research and development and design to go into commercial construction was a real eye opener for me, but it was a whole different strata of our workforce. It was a whole different way of working. Uh, definitely widened me a huge shift to go from think tank computer life to commercial construction where there had to be a certificate of occupancy in three more days and there was a crisis on the job and it's Saturday night and you're on scaffolding with tile setters trying to figure out how to solve things. It was, it was very, very interesting shift. Yeah, that's, that's, I had a, a construction background for, for many years uh, as well as in the research scientist that I am now, but uh, I can relate. <laughs> I can, I, in fact, I got an interesting story I could tell you real quick if you're if, sure. if you want to hear it. But before I uh, <laughs> tell this brief story, which is tile related, believe it or not, uh, I just had a curious question. I, I worked on uh, mostly remodels of existing commercial buildings in, in the, the Midwest, St. Louis area, to, to be more specific, but. Um, when you had a big project, let's say it's a hospital, a casino, hotel type thing, mm -hmm. how uh, I'd just be interested in knowing how long in advance do they work on wall cladding or tile selection before construction starts and ordering the product? Is it like two or three years? A minimum. Oh yes, I worked. I worked on many a project, literally for five six and seven years oh really that long that long yes uh-huh okay i think a lot of people don't realize that so on, a big, pro on a big project the, the the floor tiles or wall cladding if it's marble slabs and, or other type mm -hmm. of uh, composites when construction finally starts and and the building's being erected you were probably on that project four or five years earlier. Exactly. Yes. Okay. And and I always said something I, you know, in hindsight, you look back in the in the construction cycle, there are different phases. So I have an uncle who was very adept at structural steel. Well, you're girding your structural steels going up early in a project. Uh, but you're cladding on a building and your finishes inside are the last phase before a project is complete, which means you're already at crisis because the project's already out of money and out of time. And that's yeah. where my life just started. So boy, <laughs> if I didn't do that, the, the backwards way. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, 
so here's a quick story you might appreciate. I, I think the audience will find this interesting. It, it's it's kind of funny, but back when it happened, it was not funny at all. So here here's what I here's what I did. I'm, I'm running a construction company. Had about eighteen to twenty guys. Uh, two or three were female. So even in the late eighties and nineties, I had uh, female workers. Always good workers. Always showed up on time. But uh, we were working remodeling a brokerage house. Mm. Kind of like a, a Merrill Lynch, A.G. Mm -hmm. Edwards type uh, brokerage house. So this is a, a, a ritzier building. This is the high-end clientele. And makes sense. Glass elevators. It was mm -hmm. a three-story three office building, St. Louis. And uh, extensive remodeling. So a year and a half project. Well, the entryway of the building and then each entryway for each floor. So where you get on and off the elevator, mm -hmm. the three floor, the entryway and the three landings of each floor when you exit or enter the elevator, they had a exquisite marble floor tile. I knew you were going to say it. I'm wondering they, if it was white to boot. <laughs> so they, I didn't have any on the contract. I didn't, I wasn't the interior designer, the architect. So they picked it and, and it was ordered. <laughs> so we get <laughs> we get half the floor laid. My crew gets half the, the marble down. We need more material. So they order, <laughs> they order more material and we're waiting and we're waiting. And if, like you said, time's money and then oh, the project should have been completed yesterday. Mm -hmm. tensions tensions are rising there's nothing i can do i and then i get the phone call the phone call <laughs> here's how the phone call went um yeah about that tile to finish up your job well uh the tile was on a ship from italy yeah and it got caught in a hurricane and sank to the bottom <laughs> of the ocean yep i'm like you're kidding me no it's, I mean, the crew was safe. It was a major international. It, it sank bottom of the ocean, your tile in, included. And we hate to inform you that that was the last vein in Italy of this green tile. There's no more green tile, period. Yep. yep. We had to rip up. At that point, it was $70,000. This, this is early 1990s. $70,000 of tile and all the labor because the color was, it was halfway finished. The ship sank. That was the end of the vein of mining in Italy and had to pick a new color and start all over. What are the odds of that? I mean, that the, stress, the, the stress was unbelievable at the time. And the truth is because I worked with a lot of stone, that is more common than people realize. Your story is not abnormal at oh, really? all. Oh, really? The stress is horrific. Oh, yeah. So it's, I mean, yeah. That was, yeah. Uh, but okay. So you shift to, uh, you're, you're doing this commercial in, in San Diego. And then that's not what you're doing now for a living, is it? No, no. So, so what happened? Uh, after... I am um, my. My second marriage, I'm, I'm married for the second time. And my, um, my dear husband and uh, is a retired 
fire chief and firefighter for 34 years, and he ended up with a brain tumor and a diagnosis of brain cancer. And they were doing uh, his performing his neurosurgery, and he had a massive stroke during the neurosurgery, which is not that uncommon. People don't know it, but it does happen. When you have a stroke during neurosurgery, they don't call it a stroke. They call it an infarction. But they evidently, the surgeon hit one of the main five main arteries in, in the brain. So um, our life changed radically. And uh, he was re he had already been retired. But uh, we started going to support group and a lot of rehabilitation and uh, helping him to heal and so forth. And there's a foundation out here, a local foundation, the San Diego Brain Tumor Foundation. And uh, after a couple of years, the foundation approached me and they said, um, we've been having trouble. We've been having challenges with um, finding a good patient advocate. And we've been watching what kind of caregiver you are. And we know we can't pay you what you're making in your career, but we'd like to offer you to think about leaving that career and, and coming to be the patient advocate for the San Diego Brain Tumor Foundation and help all the families in San Diego County and city with brain cancer, whether children or husband, wives, aged people, whatever. And I knew that night I was leaving uh, University of California, San Diego campus, and I knew driving home that night, there was no way I could say no. I knew that if I said no, They'd survive, they'd find someone else, but how could I live with myself? I mean, what are you going to do? Keep schlepping tile and stone, you know, or am I going to do something to help mankind? So I said yes. And that started my third career, a, a, quite a learning career because learning curve, because obviously from my background, I did I was not coming from medicine. So I studied very hard and became board certified. And for I think I'm starting my sixth year as the patient advocate for the San Diego Brain Tumor Foundation. San Diego County is larger than the state of Connecticut in square footage. And our population is about 3.4 million. And so that's a, a pretty big terrain. A lot of, lot of families are touched with brain cancer, unfortunately. And that's what oh. I'm doing now. Okay. Yeah. That's, so that's, that, that's a large demographic. Yes, it is. So within that three and a half million population, young, middle-aged and older, there's, there's, unfortunately, there's plenty of people with brain cancer. Your profession is needed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Besides the fact that our healthcare system is quite broken. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, the, because I don't know too much about that, what, uh, and, and pardon, pardon the ignorance, but you, you can kind of bring me up to speed or the listening audience. When someone's, there's different, obviously different types of brain cancer, but when someone's diagnosed with brain cancer, do they live very long after surgeries or? It depends on the pathology or the type of tumor. So in a nutshell, tumors have different growth rates. And if you have the dreaded glioblastoma, which can also have some other technical names depending on the age of the patient, but if you have a radically fast growing tumor, 
year lifespan is very short. As in, uh, as in what? As in months. Oh, that's short. Yeah, yeah. However, uh, there is one, the most successful trial has been approved by uh, Medicare. This Social Security Administration and Medicare have approved one trial, one, one um, option. And we do have a number of glioblastoma patients in the West, on the West Coast, but some of the longest are here in San Diego who wear this particular device. And with a glioblastoma, they are living four years and some of them are now in their fifth year as opposed to half a year. So that's a oh, pretty, wow. that's a pretty good improvement. Yes. Yeah. yeah and that, that device was approved. It was uh, developed in Israel. And it was approved in the United States uh, September of 2017. In September of 2017, Medicare approved it, which means they're paying the $21,000 a month for the patient to have that device. Yeah. Um, now, the other thing to answer your question is what a lot of people don't realize is brain tumors have different growth rates, but they can jump pathology and they can jump in severity and they can also go through different stages and different growth rates. So you might be doing quite well as a survivor for let's say two or three years. And then suddenly your brain tumor will just radically take off and you don't do well, or it'll change its pathology. And right away, the medical profession will scramble and do what they can to address that shift in the brain tumor, no matter the age or gender of the person and do what they can. But there are no cures for brain cancer at currently. And I'll just share this with your audience. It's such a lower population in number than many other cancers. There's very little monetary funding and even less research addressing brain cancer. Yeah, so you, there's no- You make a no, lot more money with prostate cancer or breast cancer, or, you know, lymphomic cancer. And, and there just isn't the volume with brain cancer to justify our medical machine in this country doing much about it. I hope it's okay I say that. It's it's not okay, but no, I'm, I'm, uh, it's a reality. No, I'm canceling you right now and ending the interview. I'm mad. No, I'm just- yeah. So what you're saying is there there isn't any pink ribbon 5K marathons for brain cancer awareness and fundraising. <laughs> uh, it's very nominal. You know, there's there's a few foundations in the United States, but there the the same trial medicines are being prescribed today as were being prescribed seven and eight years ago. Do I rest my case? That doesn't mean right. there aren't some new trials. I'm not saying there aren't some new trials, but you get my drift. Sure. If if you're if if you and the American machine with what we pay for healthcare and with what healthcare costs, if you're being given the same drugs for the diagnosis in 2023 that you were being given in 2015, what's wrong with this picture? Right. What well, what's the what's the best case scenario if uh meaning if someone has a form of 
breast cancer, what's the longest someone has lived with a, a diagnosed bre breast cancer? Like you mean 10 years? Uh, you mean like a radically growing brain cancer, a, a fast growing brain cancer? Is that what you mean? Or no, no, I mean, what's the longest someone lives that has had brain cancer and they said, well, you know, we had such and such he or she was diagnosed 10 years ago and then he finally died. Mm -hmm. What's the longest that you know of someone who's lived? With it's it's a handful, but we have some that are 16 years, 18 years and 20 years, but it's a, it's a handful and they're, they're the stars, you know, they're the, okay. yeah. Yeah. So 16, 18, 20 years. Um, and it also depends on the age. So a couple of the couple of the cases I'm thinking of were diagnosed at let's say 28 or 32. And so now they're like in their fifties, you know, oh. where if you're 55 and you're diagnosed with a brain tumor, it's going to be really hard that you're going to live to 20 years. Okay. So the only reason why I'm asking is when you, I don't know what the term is when you meet a new patient. Yes. Uh, of of a family member in mm -hmm. the in, in the uh I was gonna say in the back of your mind, but I don't know if that's good. Yeah. Well, <laughs> good like pun intended. Yeah. yeah. But uh when that you're looking at the person, but you're probably thinking Yes. Oh, at, at best they've got four years. So you already you've got to deal with that and probably do you ever mm -hmm. get attached to these people and get sad when they do die? Every one of them. Every one of them. I yeah, don't, I don't think if, I don't think if you have a heart, you can, you can separate. And I, I have many end of life doulas and hospice nurses, both male and female. I have uh, social workers, end of life professionals, that whole community is of course tight knit here in town. And we all know each other on a first name basis. And we, we have our own grief group, uh, you know, that we have specific grief groups because we cannot detach from these people and their families. You, you, it, it's just, it's too heart wrenching when it's somebody. It's, it's a young mother, or it's a teenage boy, or it's a beloved grandmother. It just, I don't know. I, and because you're going through a terminal descent, a terminal disease descent, and how it's affecting the whole family, um, how can you not? Well, that, that, yeah, that's a tough career to have. I don't, mm -hmm. not everyone can do it. So you, you have to have a special personality, obviously. I would say so. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and I attribute my skill set to the spiritual and psychological and emotional work that I did earlier in my life. I think it, it I don't think I know it gave me the tools to do what I do. So, and your, your husband, is going through this and how long has he been battling? Uh, he's in his seventh year and uh, works exceedingly hard on his rehabilitation and staying healthy. And I, I do see a descent, but it's a slow descent. So the, the, one of the terms used is delayed grief. It's, it's a, it's a long journey. It's, you know, like someone who has a loved one with a long case of Parkinson's. Something okay. like that. Yeah. It's a mm -hmm. long, slow descent. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. It and it, of course it impacts the family. Uh, it's such an expensive disease diagnosis. It's so costly, um, and it just decimates families financially, emotionally, socially. Their their status in society shifts radically. It it affects the whole family. Um, right. You know, we're a death centric culture, and we're also a terminal disease. Uh, just centric. I mean, people just don't, they don't know what to do when someone has brain cancer and they know they're, they're, they're dying, you know, so everybody goes through losing family members that don't talk to them anymore, losing friends, you know, people at their job. It's, it's really, it's, uh, it's a tough journey. It really is. And, and those people need support and they need a lot of, a lot of help. That's what we do. That's what our foundation does is, is help people through the whole breadth, all the spokes of the wheel of what they're, of what they go through from initial diagnosis when the hospitals let us know of a new patient case through hospice and their end of life. Yeah. Did, did I, I'm not sure if I heard you correctly. Did, did you say that, uh, if there's sometimes when people are diagnosed with brain cancer and family or friends don't talk to them anymore. That's correct. It happens to almost everybody. I, uh, what we, <laughs> what we, this is a nervous laugh. How's that even possible? What it's, I, I think what it is, describe is what you just, what you just it's, said. It's such a scary diagnosis that it scares people away. That's so uh, bizarre. Oh, and it's just, it's heart-wrenching. And we see it in almost every family case. All, almost every family case loses family that just don't talk anymore to them. They don't show up there. And we think it's their own grief. They they haven't dealt with uh, the inevitability of dying. They're scared. They don't know. Some of them, I think, don't know what to say. They feel at a loss. They're in shock themselves. But it is very interesting to work, you know, season after season, year after year with these families and just see the pattern of what families go through. There are cultural differences. Different cultures react differently. And that's also predictable. Um, but it's uh, very. Um, <laughs> it, it, I, I, that's my nervous laugh now. You really get wise working with this. It really produces wisdom, a lot of compassion, a lot of empathy, and a, and a lot of uh, wisdom, just watching how we humans act. Well, the yeah, that, that's so bizarre for me that uh, you would have a, a loved one, a fr family friend, a, a workmate that you've maybe been very close to, and then they're diagnosed with uh, brain cancer. And, and you're scared enough that you don't associate with them or call them or visit them. I know. Isn't it and amazing? Is yeah. that, is that the case? Is that the case with other cancers like lung cancer, liver, kidney cancer, or do, is it a higher percentage with brain cancer, something about brain cancer that freaks people out? You know, that's a good question. And I don't think I can accurately answer that. I know that in, 
because I'm so specialized in, in this particular diagnosis, I know that in my studies to become a patient advocate, this is something that is discussed. And in my continuing education units, it's definitely something that's discussed across the board. Um, but I think what happens is the minute you get on the internet and you put in brain cancer or brain tumor, it is so negative and the information is so scary that that's part of what happens with brain cancer. And I think with some other cancers, for instance, uh, another one that you might hear of and know something about a pancreatic cancer is also very aggressive. Yeah. And I understand this is very similar. It's a very similar reaction, pancreatic cancer. So when you get certain diagnoses and people like uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, yes, uh, some forms of Parkinson's disease, what um, Huntington disease, when you have a neurological or a, a, a DNA abnormally uh, mutating, very, what I call gnarly descent, it's just too painful for most of our culture. And I think prostate and breast cancer and some of your more common melanoma, your skin cancer, while they can be horrific to live through, our society knows a little bit more and they know of people that have survived. Yeah. You don't hear of people that survive Lou Gehrig's because you no, don't, you don't hear, you don't hear people that survive from brain cancer because you don't. So no. I, I think that's, I think that's a, a pivotal way to answer your question. I, I wonder if, if you're in the inner circle, you might be uh, privy to information with conferences and, and dealing with, in, in the brain cancers. I wonder if there's, there has to be, and here's the science part of me coming out with all the Wi-Fi, Absolutely. The, the 5G, and then they have a 6G. They, they're using, people don't know this, they're using a 5G as a carrier for a 6G. I, that's got to be increasing the possibility of having various brain cancers, wouldn't it? You know, you're holding well, up a cell phone or you got the iPods. Isn't it, isn't it interesting that there's a noticeable increase in brain cancer with firefighters in the United States? And that is because across the United States, many municipalities and communities uh, have added income if they, install, if they install a cell phone tower on the edge of the fire station. Ah. Get my drift? <laughs> Great, yeah. So they're radiating all the uh, fire, yes. firemen who who do what they do. Two, who already days, have the firemen and firewomen already have chemical uh, toxins and poisons from their job from firefighting. A lot of people don't realize this. One of the most toxic parts of being a firefighter in residential structures. So you think of chemical plants, and you think of firefighters in New York City or downtown Chicago or. Uh, you know, Philadelphia or Boston, the older cities. But one of the worst toxic uh, parts of a firefighter's job is upholstery in homes. Your mattresses, yeah. your linens, Carpet, your, mattress, your, your uh, particle board that's used throughout the house, your drywall, as all of that is burning highly, highly toxic for these firewomen and firemen. Just terrible. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. huh? 
Wow. Well, that's that's an interesting storyline. He went from uh, growing up in the born out East Coast, Eastern Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, and then growing up school age and graduating Midwest, and then the hustle and bustle of New York, all those hours, 60, 70 hours a week for mm -hmm. a couple decades. Mm -hmm. Then I don't know what term you use. I would say, but you used a term. I just don't remember. It wasn't kind of a meltdown of some sort. You used a term. Yeah. I, I like to now say I had a spiritually transformative experience, but it was um, a metamorphosis. I went through a metamorphosis. Oh, metamorphosis. Okay. And then that takes you to uh, Arizona and then from uh Towards the end of Arizona, the uh, tile business into California, the commercial tile, and uh, that unique world, a lot different than the computer programming world of New York. And then you were approached to this new career because your husband, being diagnosed with a, a brain cancer, and that's what you're doing now. You went through, so you, you had to get certain certifications. You went, you did some studying and certifications, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Yeah. And then it was a pay cut, but it was, it was more of the uh, fulfillment purpose in life and helping people a lot more than selecting commercial tile. Bingo. Yeah. It gives a little more. Not to mm -hmm. not to put the construction trades down. We need them, but that that's you're dealing with a a higher level of purpose. Yes. When you're because it's tougher dealing with a family and a, a patient with brain cancer than the stresses of commercial construction. That's a, you're in a different field, a much yes. higher uh, spiritual emotional field that not everyone's suited to do. I I I couldn't do what you do. Very few people can. Yeah. It takes a certain personality. Yeah. But you didn't, you know, you didn't grow up. Let's say, I don't know, when did you graduate? Late 60s, early 70s? Yeah, 1971. So class of 71. So if we went in a time machine back in 1971 mm -hmm. and contacted Asha and we just uh, played this interview, would you have believed it? No. There's no mm -hmm. way of predicting it, was, was there? No, I mean, just things like I, I mean, you know, you look back on your life and you say, oh man, was I a jerk? You know, I was so adamant that I would never live in California. Look at this past two decades out here. Just, you know, it just, I no longer get dogmatic. I just, I just don't make dogmatic statements anymore. It's like, mm, I just don't want to make that error again. <laughs> It's like, mm, stay open, stay malleable, stay fluid. You know, you just don't from, know what your life is going to, you do not know how your life is going to unfold. I think from my standpoint, when I look at the West Coast, like the area where, where you are, mm -hmm. to be, uh, and this is, I'm, I'm being half funny and half serious. I look at that and I think I couldn't even afford a cardboard box. Oh, I know. In an alley. <laughs> Well, my joke is $150,000 buys you the garage door. Yeah. So 
Um, yeah. Yeah. Where my life is right now, that's out of the question. I'm planted where I am, maybe for a reason. But uh, yeah, your life, it's, it's hard to tell as decades go by where you're going to end up. Mm-hmm. And here you, um, baby boomer generation. So technically you could retire, but you're not retired. You're, Correct. you're still working. Correct. And, uh, and then how's, how's your health and energy? You, you doing all right as far as Yes. Yes, I am. I'm, I I notice I don't have quite the physical uh, stamina that I used to. I still don't sleep very much. I'm I'm very type A, very high energy, but my body does get, my body does get tired. You know, it, I, I, I see, well, <laughs> you're just not the same at 70 that you were at 20. No, none of us are. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. And of course we all hear this from grandparents and great grandparents. You don't think you're the age you are. You know, all these white haired, blue haired people running around think they're 25 years old because (laughs) your soul, your inside thinks that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I can understand that. Well, we uh, this is a very interesting uh, interview. uh, Learned learned a lot, especially about... Uh, being a patient advocate Advocate. and uh, brain cancer. We don't hear that much in the news. We've learned that it's uh, highly underfunded, doesn't get the spotlight. People don't care. It's got the old seven, eight-year-old technology. And that your area with a little over 3 million, there's enough to justify your position. Mm Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I think you're the only one I've ever, in my lifetime, you're the only one that I've ever heard that as an occupation. I never, never, a, <laughs> who does that a, for a living? Well, it's a new field. They've only been certifying patient advocates for four years. They're only, they're only, they just, they just passed the 1000th patient advocate, boarded certified patient advocate in the United States. When I passed certification, they only had about 740 patient advocates in the whole country. Oh, that's why. That's only it's a thousand a, it, in the whole yeah, country. Yeah, there are only a thousand in the country. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, um, yeah, that's very interesting. Would you um, would you how do I say this? If you had an opportunity to do it all over again, would you trade anything? Or you are where you are today because of your trials and tribulations, your life experience, and you wouldn't want to rock the boat. If you had to do it all over again, 1971. Hmm. Wow. Uh, well, I, I, if I could wave a, a, a fairy wand or whatever, a wand and change, I wish I would have understood the value of healthy mental health professionals and the field. And when I say that, I I believe that the the field is very riddled with uh, (laughs) 
dangerous people to work with. I think it's very hard to find a good mental health practitioner, just like it's hard to find a good physician or it's hard to find a good anything. But I, I would like to have had introduced into my life healthier tools sooner in my life. And it would have, I, I like to use the term of a, a, a craft, craftsman tool chest in which you have, you open your drawers and you just have the finest of tools. And whether you're a mechanic or an engineer or you're in construction, the more tools you have and you know how to use them and they're fine quality and they're they're manufactured and they're milled to excellent uh, specification and tolerance and so forth, you can create better product. And with better tools in our life, uh, our life could be have much more joy, much more wisdom, much more insight, much more tranquility with those tools. And, and our society is so devoid of that. Oh my goodness. Yeah. We have such a, our, our society is just spiritually bankrupt. Yeah. 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 Well, that's, we, that could be a good segue for a part two interview. Like what got society so bankrupt? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, was it engineered? If so, by who? Is is there non-humans involved in that? Uh, getting mankind to a, a state where we should be a lot further along as a species than we are now? That could be a, a good part two discussion. Well, I've certainly, I've certainly given much, much thought and much processing time within myself to those type of esoteric questions. Yeah. Well, maybe we could do that for a second interview. Have that discuss that topic. Would you like to do that? That would be fabulous. Yeah, so we can kind of see what our schedules are like and do an hour or so on that topic. If yes. if if you guys don't crack and fall off in the ocean being out there in California. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 in the Midwest, we gotta make fun of you somehow, right? <laughs> I would say, but of course, all the Californians listening to you will already know this, but isn't it interesting that one of the major north-south interstate highways in California goes right up the fault line? Now, isn't that ingenious? Isn't that really smart? So that that highway, Highway 15, is going to be just nothing but shrapnel concrete and nobody's going to be able to drive anywhere. Isn't that isn't that a good governmental move? Isn't that a good say, that is, civil, isn't that civil Cal service move? Yeah, California <laughs> Department of Transportation, CDOT, isn't that there? Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's just follow the San Andreas Fault. Let's just build this highway on it. <laughs> yeah, and that way if something happens, the engineers can go, hey, it's not my fault. Not <laughs> I know. Well, I had to end on a bad joke. Well, maybe they took bribes from all the states just to the east of California because it'll sure keep California from being able to go into Nevada or Arizona. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, change change the voting demographics. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, uh, Asha, thanks for being on Ethereal Underground, episode thirty six, and uh, we uh, wish you well. It's very in encouraging to hear your story and then uh you know you're doing a, a great work 
hum, uh, humanity, humane work. They're working with uh, those with the brain cancer. So kind of our hats go off to that. And uh, we hope things go well with your husband. He's seven years, he said he's uh, into this and yes. uh, working with that. And then all those years, uh, the, uh, the fire department and uh, in, that, in that region, he's, he's probably well known, I guess, isn't he? With all those years. Yes, very much so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, uh, but I, for privacy's sake, we won't give any names out. But uh, so that's uh, encouraging. Thanks for being on the show. And then we'll get together and figure out a time for part two, maybe in January or something. I, I consider that in the Midwest, I consider that kind of the slow season because it's winter. But I don't, mm -hmm. to, to where you are, it's a pretty kind of a Mediterranean climate. It's pretty mild all year round. But if you're not too busy in January, maybe we can have you back. That sounds wonderful. I'd be delighted. All right. Uh, well, thanks again. And uh, to those in the Ethereal Underground audience, hope you enjoyed this episode. As I always uh, mentioned, try to get away from media and the Wi-Fi and electronics, get out in nature, uh, get grounded, get in sync with the uh, vibration of the earth so that uh, your body can have a healing and a respite from the hectic plastic and leather world that we are forced to be a part of. So until next time. Take care.